Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Morning, everyone. You can have a seat. Good to be with you. Praise the Lord for that great time of worship and song. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joel, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I, I do believe there's a few scattered about here and there, and we would love to get you one that you can have as your own. We are in Joel chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, open up our eyes and our hearts uh, to see what you have for us, to be able to perceive, Lord, what your voice is speaking to us uh, as a group of uh, men and women and young people, uh, as well as individuals. Lord, draw us into your presence and We pray that your word would do what it was designed to do, teach, rebuke, correct, and to train us in righteousness. And so we invite you to speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started Joel last week. We're going to finish Joel this week. You like those kinds of books of the Bible, don't you? Uh, You get a grasp on them right away. You spend a little bit of time in there, and you go from that. And as you may recall, there's only three chapters that is found in the book of Joel. It's a pretty uh, quick book. Um, for us to consider maybe a total of about 80 or 90 verses uh, in the whole thing. Really just two sections uh, to the book of Joel. Uh, And we spent our time together last week. We looked at the first section. Today we'll look at the section of it, uh, the last section of it. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 17. I entitled our look at that as uh, simply as the desolation of Judah. And this is that portion of the scripture there, that portion of the book of Joel, in which a locust invasion has made its way into the land of Israel, particularly the southern portion of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and within a two-month period of time laid waste to everything that was before uh, those locusts that had come in. And so the land was desolate. And you recall that Joel rises up, this prophet, he rises up on the scene at that point in time. And the Lord uses the circumstances of that event, the destruction uh, caused by these locusts, to, for him to point people to another event, the day of the Lord, which would come. Chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, 1, 11, I think 31. And then again in chapter 3, he talks about the day of the Lord in each of those particular places. And he uses the circumstance of the locust invasion. Now that we are toward the end of the book, chapter 2, verse 18, through the end of chapter 3, we are going to look at the deliverance of Judah. So there was the destruction of Judah, the desolation of Judah. Now there's going to be the deliverance of Judah. It's where we will spend our time uh, this morning. This locust invasion... Joel asks the question, old people, he says, have any of you seen anything like this in your day? Have, have your parents talked about it in their day? And the answer that comes back is essentially no, nothing has been like this. And then he uses that as a springboard. Now, I was reminded last week, I should have put some pictures of modern day locust invasions up. Um, you know, so, so I have a few. Here's one here. Let's see. That, how would that, that wake you up in the morning? If you saw that, these are locusts. This was in the nation of uh, Jordan, which is the neighboring nation to Israel. Obviously not too long ago, it's color. Um, So within the last, whatever, 40 years or so. But that's the nation of Jordan. Here's another one, I think it's a little worse. This is in um, Egypt, I believe it was, which is just to the south of uh, Israel, even today. Um, Sorry, Uh, I don't know if you saw that. People behind me are doing something. All right, here's the next one, most disconcerting to me. This is Nebraska. 
Yeah, I don't know if you know, Nebraska's in America. Um, so that freaks me out because that means it could happen here. All right, these are locusts. They're not birds and things like that. Even if it was birds, it would freak me out. Uh, but that's the land there of Nebraska. Uh, and so in Joel's day, millions and millions of these locusts came in. And again, within two months, the land was desolate because of these things and, and how they come in and how they eat. And that was Joel's catalyst. Essentially, Joel is going to say this. To put it into my own words, he says, what you see before you, this is going to pale in comparison to the great and der- terrible day of the Lord, which is going to come uh, in its particular timing. And so Joel moves on from there. Now, starting now in verse 18, Joel's going to transition from the events in front of him to the events of the day of the Lord. And it's kind of this gradual transition that begins somewhere in chapter 2. So he's no longer talking about what the people see in front of them. He's talking about what he sees in front of him. That's not going to make any sense to the people on in the, the radio or whatever, but it should make it sense to you what is way out in front of him in the future. That's what Joel's now going to transition into. So let me read about it. Starting in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no longer, no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the northerner far from you. I'll drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Now, we've been looking at the history of the Jewish people. As you make your way through the Old Testament, maybe in your personal reading, or as we've been kind of doing since looking at the book of Hosea and now the book of Joel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times Israel was disobedient to the Lord. And you see this cycle of things in the Old Testament. And they would uh, repent, quote-unquote, they would confess, we're so sorry we did this, Lord, please you know, stop with the, the punishment or the penalty that has come upon us. But there'd be this continued backsliding. They'd keep on going back to the same things that they had been corrected with before. And we saw that God would bring about his judgment upon his people. Now, what we see here in chapter 2, verse 18, despite all of those rebellions and false repentances, I think that's... Uh, not a word, but you get the point. Despite all of that, notice the Lord continues to see the Jewish people as his special people. The, another place in the scripture, Zechariah chapter 2, the Jewish people are called the apple of God's eye. You've heard that expression. It, it's, it, I think it's supposed to mean where the pupil kind of focuses in on something of attention. And that is the apple of God's eye are the Jewish people. And so despite the fact that the Lord said, look, you need consequences for your sins to bring you back to your senses, and he used the surrounding nations of the world to do that, the Lord never took his eye off of his people. And as we begin to see now in this passage that is before us, he says, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He began to see the desolation and the destruction of the day that is still yet ahead of us, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. He began to see that and the pain that was coming upon his people, and he had pity on them, and he was moved. 
And so in response then to the abuse of his people by those agents that the Lord had brought, put in place, notice how verse 19 goes on to say, he says, behold, I'm sending to you the grain and the wine and the oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Look at verse 20, he says, I will remove the northerner far from you. And he talks about the Eastern Sea and the Western Sea. Now, the Eastern Sea, if Israel is, is uh, the point of reference, the Eastern Sea is the Dead Sea, to, kind of to the left on the map, if you will. And the Western Sea, that would be the Mediterranean Sea to the right. It's as if the Lord is saying, I'm, I'm going to take those enemy invaders that have come into the land and I'm going to push them out of the land. I'm going to push them to the Eastern Sea. I'm going to push them to the Western Sea. And Israel once again will be free of those invaders. The land will once again bear harvest and grain and oil and wine and all of those things. He says that in verse 21. And he's speaking as if the land were personified. He's speaking to the land saying, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit so that they could go and eat, you know, the grass and so on. He says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication, and he's poured down for you abundant rain, both the early and the latter rain. Talking to the land, he says, Be glad and rejoice. Talking to the beast, he says, You're going to be able to find that pasture that you're looking for. Speaking to the children of Zion, the Jewish people, he says, once again, rejoice because the early rains and the latter rains are going to return once again to Israel. And if it wasn't for those early rains, which come in like April, and I think they call it October, uh, it, I think of the year as January through uh, December, but for them, they started in the middle of the year. And so their early rains are October, their latter rains are April. And they would come into the land, and it, if it wasn't for them, they'd be a dry and deserty land, deserty land like all the other lands that are around them. And those rains are going to return to that area, he says there. Thus, the ground is going to once again be able to flourish. Notice 24, he says, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. This is where you take the grain, you get rid of the junky stuff, and you keep the good stuff. You thresh that grain. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. Remember, they're all types of locust, or as we said, they're stages in the life of a locust. He says, my great army which I sent among you shall eat in plenty, you shall be satisfied, you shall praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put uh, to shame. He says there that the Lord has dealt wondrously with you. And and perhaps you've been in a circumstance where maybe you haven't been feeling too good, you know, you're not like in bed or whatever, but you just haven't been feeling good. You're a little tired, a little this, you're a little that. And then you wake up one day and you feel good. And you feel really good. But you probably feel normal. You know what I'm saying? But in comparison to where you were before, and now you're like skipping and you're hopping around the house and you're like, Lord, this is fantastic. And it, it just sort of resonates in a fresh way. Well, here are these people, they're returned to that place where good, they're experiencing good in their lives again. And it says here, that they're going to praise the Lord. He has dealt wondrously with me. There's apples on the trees. 
and you know, the oil and so on and so forth. And he promises them that he's going to fully restore them. Again, 24, the threshing floor is full of grain. A little bit later, the vats, these containers overflowing with wine and oil. And then I think he says some of the most remarkable, grace-filled words in all of the Bible. Look at verse 25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, my great army, which I have sent among you. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. Now, of course, he's talking about the land that had been destroyed. That's the the interpretation. That's what he's referring to. First by the locust invasion, a little bit later on by the subsequent armies, partially the Babylonians, which came in in the 500s, and then eventually the Antichrist and his forces in the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so primarily speaking of that, and he says, I will restore what the locust has eaten. What the, la- the land that has been destroyed, I'll restore it once again. But the reason why I say these are some of the most remarkable grace-filled words in all of the scriptures is because he's also speaking of the lives of the inhabitants of the land as well and the difficulties and the struggle. And I went out and I farmed my land and it was all destroyed in a couple of weeks' time that all of that is going to be restored. So it's not just land, but it's the people's lives that are going to be touched as well. And why is that some of the most grace-filled words in Scripture? Because how many of us in this room can testify to the very tr- that very truth in our own lives, that God has restored, and as to use the phraseology there, the years that the swarming locust has eaten? As you, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. What I'm talking about is years and years and years of sin and rebellion And the consequences those decisions have made have brought heartache to many of us and difficulty to many of us and pain and dryness in our lives and blight like the land became blight. But what has the Lord done? He's entered into our lives. He's done a work in our hearts and he's restored all of those years that have been taken away. And he's done a merciful work in our lives, bringing restoration. And others... What would they do with us? We're a 30-year-old reject. We're a 30-year-old drunk. We're a 40-year-old this. We're a terrible husband or that, whatever it may be. And others might just simply say, you know what? Throw that guy out. Throw that gal out. Let's work on a nice 12-year-old and see if we can raise them up to know the Lord. But what does the Lord do? He snatches us out of our foolishness. And in a period of five years and 10 years and 15 years, he restores. It is so good, isn't it? Again, I I keep saying this. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. And God can change a life. And he has changed so many of our lives in this room. Praise the Lord for that. He goes on, he says, You shall eat plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Most importantly, land restored, that's wonderful, but the people are restored. And never again, he says there at the end of that verse, will the people be put to shame. He's going to restore them in every way possible. Physically, he restores them. Materially, he restores them. Spiritually, he restores them there. Even the farming itself, the land agriculturally. And I think the most important of all of those is spiritually. And so notice that. Look at verse 28. He says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my servant and my spirit. 
I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, I suspect we know that most of us don't read our minor prophets, correct? What do we call those books? We call them the clean pages in our Bible. Most of us, you know, we, we kind of, yeah, let's go up to Matthew. That looks exciting. Or whatever. Yet, those verses probably sound familiar to many of us, don't they? Yeah, because they're quoted in the New Testament that we enjoy reading. They're quoted in the book of Acts there. This is when the Apostle Peter, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, that is his famous sermon. This guy who 50 days earlier was hiding from little girls and denying Jesus and saying, little girl, I, I assure you, I do not know who this Jesus is, as Jesus is about to be crucified and is being pulverized by the Roman people. He denies him there. Here he is now 50 days later, standing up, preaching a message in front of thousands of people. And in that message, he quotes this particular passage that is here. So at the very least, we know that the partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, at the very least. However, what I would suggest to you is it's just a partial fulfillment, that there is a fuller fulfillment that will take place in the great and terrible day of the Lord and the days following the tribulation period as the whole context of the book of Joel has been telling us. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we read these words. I'm going to skim over there a little bit uh, with you. You can turn there if you want to. It says, Now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. Now that day of Pentecost, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. It took place 50 days after Passover. It's become a Christian holiday because the Lord did something powerful on that particular day. He poured out his spirit as he said he would do on his disciples, into the lives of his disciples. It says, continuing, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You can imagine those that were observing this is what is going on here? These people, they're all speaking. It'll tell us a little bit later on that all of those that were filled with the Spirit began to speak in these tongues. They began to communicate to other people in languages unknown to them, but known to the hearers. People all over the world had gathered into Jerusalem. It'll tell us that from all the nations had gathered into Jerusalem. And this guy knew Spanish and this guy French or whatever the languages of that particular day were. And here are these Jewish folks that are speaking to them in French and in Spanish and Italian and whatever other language communicating the gospel. Now the response of the people, or some of the people at the very least, is that these people are drunk. Yeah, that usually is how it works, right? You can speak fluently in other languages when you're drunk. Well, that's the response of some of the people observing this. Look at these fools. They're drunk. And Peter, I've always found this interesting. Peter's like, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. If it were later in the day, maybe. No, or something like that. He says, they're not drunk, as you say. And then he goes on and he quotes. 
he says, men of Judea and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, verse 14, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's third hour of the day, which is nine in the morning. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, it is interesting to note, and perhaps the King James brings this out a little more differently, and perhaps that's sort of the interpretation of those um, translators, is Peter doesn't say this is the fulfillment of Joel, but rather, as it says in the King James, this is that which was spoken by Joel, almost as if he's trying to say and, and pull for the closest thing he can to what is going on here. And so the idea would be this is that what Joel was talking about when God was going to pour out his spirit on masses of people. And so if that is indeed the case, that's the best that he can come to, that that which has taken place on this Pentecost is the very same thing or similar to that which Joel said would take place at the day of the Lord. Not that this is the day of the Lord. And what did God say was going to happen on the day of the Lord, according to Joel's prophecy back there in chapter 2? is that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. To use the words that Peter used, uh, it says there, out of every nation under heaven. The people that were out of every nation under heaven or on all flesh. And so if that is indeed the correct interpretation, then what Peter is saying is this is a sample of what Joel foretold. And he's using this passage then as an illustration, not as a complete and total fulfillment. Because again, the context of Joel makes it that the complete fulfillment of this is a day yet future, even for us. It's a day yet future for us, what we commonly call the millennium. Now let me just give you a quick review of some of those end time terminologies that there. We're living in what has been called, what is called the church age. The church age is going to come to a close with the rapture of God's church. That's that sudden snatching away of God's people, bringing them into heaven. And coinciding with that sudden snatching away, that rapture, or at the very least, very shortly thereafter, will be the revelation of the Antichrist. And he will be revealed. That will lead to a period that is called the Great Tribulation, where both the Lord and Satan are going to think he's doing his thing too, but it's ultimately the Lord. His wrath will be poured out on society. Satan's wrath will be poured out on the Jewish people. And, and you get the idea. This isn't a study there. That tribulation is a key portion of what we call the day of the Lord. And it ends, the tribulation ends with the return of Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the start of the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. That thousand-year reign is called, that's called the millennium. All right, And so that day of the Lord, it begins with the tribulation. It continues all the way into and through the millennium. It's God's direct interaction with humanity, the day of the Lord. And the complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, it occurs at that particular moment in time. That is when, as the millennium is about to begin, God pours out his spirit on all flesh, as our passage points out. That is when the sons and the daughters will prophesy. That's when the old men are going to dream dreams. And the young men and women, they're going to see visions there. And those Jews who are now blinded, the majority of the Jewish people who are now blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, in that moment as he pours out, God pours out his spirit on them, their eyes will be opened. 
and they will begin to see and they will know. This is what is prophesied in the book of Zechariah. It says, and I will pour out on the house of David, pour out, same terminology, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they, as it says, look on me on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Who's the one that was pierced? Jesus. And they'll recognize that Jesus Christ is indeed their Messiah. This is what Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, Romans chapter 11, this is the moment in time where Paul says that all Israel will be saved. I used to have trouble with that because it seemed to be saying that all Jewish people get to go to heaven, whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's not true. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. Jewish person, Gentile person, person who grows up in the church, you need to believe in Jesus Christ in order to have your sins forgiven to go to heaven. So why is it all Israel will be saved? Well, as Paul tells us, all Israel will be be saved because the deliverer will come. And God will pour out his spirit on the Jewish people, causing their hearts to recognize the one whom they've pierced and they'll have mercy. They'll cry for mercy. Is that making sense? A little bit there to you? Nope, not at all? Okay. Um, Go back and listen to the tape. Now, the, the events of the tribulation, Joel goes in and starts talking about them. All right, and we see in Joel chapter 2, Verse 30, we finished up a moment ago in 29. It says, And I'll show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and and terrible or awesome day of the Lord comes, it says. Now, Joel describes in two verses the events of the tribulation period. As, and some of the key phrases there, wonders in the heavens, earth becomes blood and fire and columns of smoke, sun turned to darkness. In two verses, he describes the events of the tribulation. Jesus describes the events of the tribulation in the book of Matthew. It's also found in the book of Luke. In the book of Matthew, though, in chapters 24 and 25. So Joel describes those events in two verses. Jesus describes those events in two chapters. You can go back and look at Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. We're going to look a little at 25 later on. John the Apostle describes the events of the tribulation. Joel did it in how many verses? Two. Jesus did it in how many chapters? Two. John is going to take 14 chapters to describe it. In Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. So if you really want to know what's going to go on during the tribulation period, probably your best source is probably Revelation chapter 6 to 19, because it's going to cover a lot more material and in-depth things there, where those others are just a couple of verses, and in Jesus' case, just a couple of chapters. And the outpouring of God's Spirit, described in verses 28 and 29, are preceded by the wonders in the heavens, described in verses 30 and 31. And at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus Christ is going to return, coinciding with that. The Spirit's going to pour out a uh, God's going to pour out his spirit. The Jewish people are going to recognize who Christ is. They're going to repent, and they're going to be saved. All Israel will be. Joel goes on in verse 32. It's so good, I'm going to take a sip of water. If you have water with you, take a sip yourselves. Um, I'm sure you don't have coffee with you because you can't have that in here. I'm just teasing. Let's go on here. You can have bottles of water. Uh, moving on, verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be 
There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. All right, it's a test, a little quiz. Where will the Jewish people escape to during the tribulation? Nice and loud. You got it right, somebody. Petra. Yeah, over in Jordan. We, we always want to go there on our trips, but it's a four-hour drive, and you're there for like an hour, and then it's a four-hour drive back, and we're like, ah, I can see pictures. Already, But Petra is where they will go, That sort of that rock. Petra means rock. It's this sort of this rock city. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Look at pictures when you go home there. All right. But he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a universal truth for all people at all times. Universal truth. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this morning, if you're a person who finds yourself in need of a Savior, and you recognize that Jesus Christ is that Savior, on the authority of God's Word, we can proclaim this morning, if you call out to Him, He will hear you and He will receive you. Jesus said during His earthly ministry, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. And so this morning, if you're here and you realize, look, I've never begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I've heard a lot of things. I come, I sit, I listen, and it's interesting, or I was raised in the church, or whatever it may be. But you recognize, I've never come to a relationship with Christ for myself. I've never come to the place where I recognize that my sins separate me from God, but God made a way through his Son where the perfect one would be crucified, would suffer, would die so that I wouldn't have to. And if you've never been there before, you've never done that, but you recognize you need to, then I urge you, call out to him. Read this verse. Apply this verse to your life. Everyone who calls out upon the Lord will be saved, the Scripture says. That's great news. Call to him if you need to. Now, as we come to chapter 3, two things begin happening simultaneously, we see, in this day of the Lord. All right, first, Israel is delivered. Secondly, uh, Israel is restored. I'm sorry, Israel is delivered and restored. Secondly, God summons the surrounding nations, as we'll see. He calls them. You come to Jerusalem, it's time for judgment here. So look at verse 1. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, same time period, simultaneous events, Israel's being restored. The nations uh, are being summoned to Jerusalem. He says, In those days at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, have divided up my land, have cast lots for my people, have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now, we've already been introduced to the idea of the restoration to the Jewish people. But here now, we have this idea of God judging the nations. And that begins there in verse 2. Now, in the earliest chapters of the book, God warned the people of Israel of his coming judgment. The locust invasion was part of that. Now, he reminds all the nations that they, too, will be called to give an account for their offenses. And again, you see in verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He's going to gather these nations of the world to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the phrase Jehoshaphat means God's judgment. So the valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley of God's judgment. Now there is a valley in the land of Israel 
that is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And so we might draw the conclusion that must be the place that it's going to happen here. However, that valley received his name, its name in like the 300s. And so it was after Bible times that that valley received its name. And some people wonder if it received its name because people drew the conclusion that that's where this judgment was going to come. And so they called it the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Today, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, with that name, is commonly referred to as the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley separates the Temple Mount area, Mount Zion, which is where the Temple Mount is built on. Then there's this little valley, and it's not very far at all. And then you begin to go up the Mount of Olives. And so you have the Mount of Olives here. The, the Temple Mount is there. You can walk there maybe in five minutes or so. It's not very, very far away to go down and back up. And that valley in between the two is the Kidron Valley, and it's also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, we know that Jesus Christ, when he returns, other places in the Scripture tell us this, is that he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And so the conclusion then is drawn is that's where he's going to kind of set up shop, and he's going to bring the people to the Valley of Jehoshaphat where they're going to be judged. And so that, that's how sort of that conclusion came. Other people, I think they make a pretty good argument, is that the place where uh, the people will um, come into direct contact with the Lord first and foremost is in the plains of Megiddo. And the plains of Megiddo are a little further to the north, north, a little further to the west. It's this wide open area of land. And the scripture teaches us in those plains of Megiddo, that's where the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And in our minds, we use the word Armageddon to describe a lot of things. We think it's going to be this great and terrible war, you know, like it's, it's Armageddon. It's a nuclear war between Russia and America or something like that. The battle of Armageddon is ultimately going to be a war against Jesus. And the nations of the world are going to, initially, they're going to gather to fight each other. There's three sides the scripture uh, makes clear. And I don't have all the passages. It's just my head right now. But there's three sides that will come against one another. Jesus Christ is going to return. Those three sides will immediately unite and go to war against Jesus. That's the battle of Armageddon. It's a, it's a war against the Lord. And so some have concluded that that's the valley of Jehoshaphat. Either way, there's going to be a place in Israel where the enemy nations will come and they will be judged by the Lord. Again, remember, Jehoshaphat means God's judgment, the valley there of Jehoshaphat, and he will mete out his judgment. Chapter 3, verse 14, you can see, you can scan down in your Bibles. It's also called there the valley of decision. It's interesting, uh, evangelists and things like that, you know, guys like Billy Graham, for instance, I'm not sure if he did this, but evangelists that'll preach the message, uh, many times they'll come to a conclusion of their message and they'll say, look, like the days of Joel, you're standing in a valley of decision. Well, it's, it, that's not really the case because in the valley of decision, the one making the decision is not the individuals. It's not the people. It's not the nation. It's the Lord. And the Lord is casting his decision like a judge casts his or her decision at the end of a court case there. That the Lord will assemble all the nations of the earth. He will pronounce his decision just like a judge would do at the end of a court case. And those events are described for us in Matthew 25. And so I would like us all to turn there. If you have a Bible, we're not putting this up on the screen, so sorry if you didn't bring your Bible. Look in your, your chair in front of you there. There's one in front of you, some of you maybe. But turn, let's all turn in our Bibles, scroll over in our phones to Matthew chapter 25. 
And I want to see these words because these are literal things that are going to occur in a particular point in time prophesied 2,000 years ago. Remarkable section of scripture, as it all is, certainly so. Starting in Matthew chapter 25, 31, it says this, Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, just like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will place on his left side. Now verse 31, when is this happening? When is the Son of Man, or what is the Son of Man coming in his glory? That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. What will he do? He will sit himself down on his glorious throne. Where will this be? I've already told you. Other places in Scripture tell us it'll be upon the Mount of Olives. And all the nations will be gathered before him where, Joel just told us, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which again could be the Kidron Valley or it could be uh, just the term, the valley of God's judgment. And who will be there? Well, Jesus will be there on his throne and all the nations of the earth. And finally, what do we learn in the Matthew passage? What is Jesus going to do? He's going to separate the people. Like a shepherd separates the sheep on one side and the goats of the other. Again, don't, go, don't leave Matthew. We're going to keep going through there. This is the valley of decision. This is the Lord essentially saying, taking you stand over there, you over there, you over there, you over there. And he's separating the people, some on his left and some on his right. Now, what's the basis of his decision? How does he determine who's on one side and who is on the other? Look at verse uh, 34. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For, he says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. You didn't really answer the question, Jesus. He does. And he's going to explain how he does a little bit later. But he says, we're going to put some over here on my right side. He said, these are those that when I was hungry, gave me food. When I was thirsty, gave me drink. When I was a stranger, they welcomed me. When I was naked, they clothed me. When I was sick, they looked after me. And when I was in prison, they came and they visited me. Pretty generous group of people. But notice what they asked. They asked the question in verse 7, 37, and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink or visit you and bring you clothes and all of those things? And then look at verse 40. Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and si the, these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now the context is the tribulation period, correct? Right before Jesus Christ returns. That's the whole context of these things here. Sometimes we, we read Matthew 25 and we forget the events that Jesus is speaking of. And so we look at these and we draw these conclusions, which I think are good conclusions, that we as people, we should care for the needy and those that are in prison, we should care about them and visit them and give a warm cup of drink or hot food or whatever it may be to people, and we can apply that. But the immediate application is this is re regarding the gathering of the nations, the peoples before the Lord. And so who then are Jesus's brothers and his sisters in that context? It's the Jewish people. 
And so what Jesus is saying there is the way you treated my people, nations of the world, during that tribulation period, that's now what I'm going to use as my, uh, the basis of my decision here in the valley of decision. And then the passage will go on from there, and it'll talk about what will happen with those that mistreated the Jewish people, that bought into the system of the Antichrist, that persecuted the Jews and caused them to flee and arrested them and stole all their stuff from them and didn't provide for them when they would not take of the mark of the beast, and so they could not buy or sell or engage in economy in any way, and they were essentially a desperate people. He said, how did you treat my people? in those particular days. That's how they will be judged. What Joel is prophesying, what Jesus is declaring, is that God is going to gather the nations to this valley of Jehoshaphat. And he will judge how they treated the apple of his eye, who is again, the Jewish people. There's three events, judgments, that are associated with the last days. We always think of the day of judgment. Oh, when I appear before the Lord in the day of judgment, I sure, you know, people talk about that. Well, in in Scripture, there's actually three days of judgment, three times of judgment that are associated with sort of the end of the world or the end of our days. And they are not necessarily in order, but they are these. There is what is called the Bema Seat of Judgment. Now, the Bema Seat, it's a a place, we're getting late, I'm sorry. Uh, it's It's a specific seat in the Roman society where awards were given out for those that completed the marathon or whatever. And the Bema Seat of Judgment in Scripture, that's the place where believers will be rewarded and where rewards will be distributed on the basis of our service to the Lord. And so, you know, we talk about our many crowns in heaven. People talk about that, the rewards that we earn here on the earth. This is not to get into heaven. All of these people that come before the Bema seat, they already ran the marathon. They finished it up. They won. Now they go before the seat of judgment to receive their rewards. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Some of you are looking at me like, hey, you know all this stuff. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Go there. You can look at it. You can read it for yourself. That's the Bema seat of judgment. And it takes place in heaven during the tribulation on earth. Christians will already have been taken out of this world, will be in heaven, and will appear before the Bema seat while the tribulation is going on here. So that's one of the three. A second judgment, and this is not in chronological order, but a second judgment is the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and 12. I'm not making this stuff up. You can go and you can read these places, and that's why I'm giving you the reference. Go back and look. That great white throne judgment takes place after the millennium, and it involves anyone who's, as it says in Revelation 20, not written in the book of life that somehow survived uh, the tribulation, the millennium period of time, and they'll be judged for their, their deeds. And the scripture says, you're not in the book of life. Every one of them is going to come up wanting. Every one of us in this room, if we were judged on our deeds, we would come up wanting. As Christians, we're judged on the deed of one man and one man only, Jesus Christ. But anyone who rejects the work of Jesus Christ, the Lord essentially says, all right, well, now you're on your own. Show me what you've done. Were you good enough to get into heaven? And then you begin to just sort of weigh it all out. And you're like, man, you've got a lot of bad things you've done because nobody's good enough to get into heaven. 
That's the great white throne of judgment. The last judgment associated with sort of end time events is the one that we're considering today. And this is commonly called the judgment of the nations. And the judgment of the nations, so you have sort of these bookends here. You have the Bema Seat of Judgment, which takes place during the tribulation in heaven for Christians. You have the one at the end of the millennium, which is called the Great White Throne of Judgment, which is for non-Christians. And then in the middle of that, somewhere there in the middle of that, is the judgment of the nations. And the judgment of the nations, as we've been seeing, it comes right at the end of the tribulation, following the return of Christ before the millennium. Everybody getting this a little bit? All right, wetting your appetite a little so you can go and do additional study and check and see if these things are so as we read in Acts chapter 17. Continuing in Joel. Back to Joel now. Let's all go back. Joel draws our attention to the judgment. Verse 4, he says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back? This is the Lord speaking. Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Sounds like fighting words. For you've taken my silver and my gold. You've carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I'll sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah." And they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. The nations gather. Now what's interesting, the Lord wants to meet with all of these nations. I don't know what that means, their heads, whatever it may be. But he wants to meet with each of these nations. And to get them there, he stirs up within them a desire to come and fight against him. And so in their mind, it's their own idea. I'm getting over to Jerusalem and tell that Jesus something or whatever. And then they come and he's like, hey, I'm glad you're here. I've been meaning to talk to you as well. Verse 9, it's, notice it says, they will beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. You've heard that phrase? You probably haven't. You probably heard the reverse because you, the UN likes to say that all the time here. It's, it's time for us to you know, turn our weapons into items of peace and farming agriculture or whatever it says there swords into plowshares spears into pruning hooks but here it says the exact opposite because this is not going to be a time of peace for the surrounding nations it's going to be a time of war for the surrounding nations they're going to go to war against the lord there verse 9 he goes on proclaim this among the nations consecrate for war stir up the mighty men let the men of war draw near let them come up beat your as we said, plowshares into swords, your hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves together. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come where? To the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Jehoshaphat means God's judgment. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the evil is great multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun, the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw. They're shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth will quake. And whew, that's a lot there. Further study. Let me give you some passages to write down. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 20. See anybody writing 
All right. Oh, don't worry. I got it, Greg. It's in my head. It's, you're going to forget it. Zechariah chapter 14, 1 to 21. Revelation chapter 19, 11 to 21. Those three passages, especially the Zechariah 14 one, they provide pretty graphic details. Not graphic in the sense of like it's R-rated. Graphic in the sense of like real descriptive. Maybe that's a better term. Descriptive details uh, of what Joel was just talking about there when those people will come um, there. And all three of those passages, catch this, they're post-tribulation, pre-millennium events. Right at the end there of the tribulation before the start of the millennium. And this is the day of decision. And it takes place in the valley of decision. And the one making the decision is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's decision. And it's a decision which will determine the destinies of these people forever. And it's terrifying for us to read these things. Especially if we consider, I know people that right now would be in that boat. And would be judged by the Lord. But I want you to notice, look at verse uh, 16, the second half of it. He says, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Again, with the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats, there is going to be a separation that is made, where the enemies will be of Christ will be placed on one side, and those who take refuge of Him will be will be on the other side, where Jesus Christ will become their hiding place. Verse 17, He says, "So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy." And strangers will never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a mountain, uh, a fountain, excuse me, shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Now you remember back in Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus ascended into heaven. I imagine many of us here have read Acts chapter 1. Jesus has, has been resurrected. He's been interacting with his disciples once again. And one of, a group of his disciples are together there in Acts chapter 1. And one of them says, Lord, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, you remember that question roughly? Uh, I don't know if we have it. Yeah, we do. In, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, the time of restoration that they're thinking of is what Joel has just written about in the latter half of verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18. This is when the kingdom of Israel will be restored. This long-sought kingdom of Jesus, the Son of Man, will be ushered in. As Paul said again, and all Israel will be saved. All will know, all Israel will know who Jehovah is. And they will dwell with him, bringing to an end once and for all the so-called times of the Gentiles, in which the city of Jerusalem, as it says in Luke chapter 21, was trotted underfoot. I'm not sure, trampled underfoot in, in the more modern versions there. It'll bring an end to that. What's Jerusalem commonly called? It's called the, the holy, the holy city. You've heard that, right? Jerusalem's called the holy city. Well, in this instance, it will truly be the holy city once again. Because all of the Gentiles that have uh, trampled it underfoot for the last, whatever, 2,000 plus years and, and way even beyond that, they will be dealt with. The Lord's presence will be there. The people will gather and he will rule in righteousness from that place once again, the holy city will indeed be always and forever holy. Verse 19, Egypt will become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. 
for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. And I will avenge their blood, the Lord says. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord will dwell or he dwells in Zion. This is the complete and total and everlasting deliverance of the land of Judah, Israel, to all generations. And it's a glorious day. And it should be the longing of every believer's heart. Jewish person, Christian person, it should be the longing of our hearts when the Lord will finally restore his land and righteousness will rule on the earth as it did in the days of the garden. People that do this sort of thing have counted the verses of the Bible. Does anyone know how many verses there are in the Bible? Maybe you're that person here. There's 31, apparently, I didn't count, 31,124 Bible verses in the Bible. Of those 31,124, 8,352 of those verses contain Bible prophecy. That's 26.8% of the Bible is Bible prophecy. One quarter of the Bible, a little more than that, God revealed to his people the future of what was going to occur. And a lot of those events have already occurred in Scripture. The prophecies have already been fulfilled. And many of those are still yet future and things that will be fulfilled. And God's desire, I bring this up here, one quarter of our Bible, God is predicting the future, telling his people in advance what is going to happen, is because he wants us to know these things. And his desire is that we would know these things beforehand so that we might ready ourselves for those things. That's God's desire. He's not, he's not trying to spring some pop quiz on us. He wants us to know these things so we will ready ourselves for these things. And the Lord has made it clear in his word that there is a coming day when all who stand opposed to him, out, they're outside of Christ, that there is a coming day when they will be held accountable for their sins. And that's a truth that God desires every one of us to know, and many of us do, but it's a truth that he desires for the entire world to know so that they can ready themselves. I'd encourage you, if you don't know yet Christ, and I've said this earlier, if you don't know Christ yet, but you recognize you need a Savior, Jesus Christ is that Savior. And he wants you to know, I don't want you to go through judgment. I want you to be restored into right relationship with me. And I'd encourage you, going back to that verse we looked at a little earlier, it's the last thing I'm going to say, cry out to the Lord seeking forgiveness because remember that, that wonderful truth, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Well, may the Lord move in our hearts with these things. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of God's word. We thank you for your kindness in sort of letting us in on some secrets, making us aware of these things beforehand. And Lord, even that we see your heart in doing so. Is because you want each one of us that live on the earth, have lived on the earth, will live on the earth, to read these things and respond, to ready ourselves for that day so that we would not have to go through that day. And so, Lord, we do pray for those with us that don't yet know the Lord. Open up their hearts even now. Give them that measure of faith which prompts them to cry out to you, believing that you will hear them and you will respond. Enter into their life with the newness of the Holy Spirit. And give them new life. And Lord, we pray for us, many of us here that are Christians, we've been Christians for some time now, 
Lord, we pray for our friends and our family members that are around us, our co-workers, people that we come into contact with that don't yet know Jesus. Lord, there is not a hope beyond nice things happening on this side of uh, eternity. Lord, we pray for the opportunity to speak for them. We pray for the boldness to speak into their life, the courage. We pray you would give us the words to speak in those instances. Lord, that we might be able to communicate the wonderful work you've done in us into their lives as well. And that you would use us in the lives of others. That their eternities would be changed forever. And so, Lord, do pour out your Spirit upon us. That we might go forth and be able to speak truth and prophesy. That we might have a sense of vision for what it is you want to do. And who you want to do it in. And use us in an abundant way, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.